0: here here. Um, this is a podcast that's uh, free to listen to but it's not free to make. I've got to pay Andy and Rachel and um, Bree and uh, Mike who make the music, the better music than this. This is me playing and trying to talk at the same time. It's very difficult. <laughs> so you might hear an ad and if you do, thank you. You're... um, uh, helping me pay Andy and Rachel and Brie and Haley and all the people who work on the show with me. So if you do hear an ad, thank you. If you don't, you're about to hear um, Mr. Simon Taylor say something cool. Here we go.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: It actually doesn't happen. It never happens. And yet it happened on my first. Night in LA. Very common amongst Australians to find a couch in LA. (laughs) And I said, if you can find a gig for me, I'd love to do some stand up while I'm there. And I got a gig there. I got off the plane, pretty much went to the gig, and a producer from The Tonight Show was at that gig.
0: What did this person say to you after the set?
3: You were really funny. Would you like to come see The Tonight Show? And then after the show, I was leaving, and the producer came, found me, and he said, no, 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 come meet Jay backstage. I met Jay. And I just wanted to be a bit of a smart-ass and a larrikin. And when I met him, I said, hey, Jay, I'm going to write for you one day. Ha, ha, ha. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, the producer says you're funny. Before I left, Jake said, send some jokes in. We'll get an Australian perspective. And I went home. I was shaking. I wrote two pages of jokes and I sent them off. And the next day they sent
0: me a contract. That is author, comedian, and magician. <laughs> he's literally magician. Simon Taylor. And this is episode 383 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you for being here. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is a bi-weekly podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something that you hear on the show will make you go, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah, I might give that a shot in my own life. And then hopefully. In fact, no, definitely. Today will be better than yesterday. It will. That's what I'm here to do. Mondays I'm here with a guest, Fridays I'm here with you. I've been here every week since 2013. And there's a squazillion other episodes to listen to. Thank you for the uh, feedback about the safety behavior podcast. Uh, if you've not checked out, you can't ask that. It's streaming right now on ABC iView. I'm on well, the whole season's up. I'm on the episode about obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, I'm really grateful, A, for all the people that did reach out about that episode, but also the people that reached out about talking about safety behaviors, because it might not be OCD, but you may have safety behaviors that have crept in to the way you manage your anxiety. Or or as someone who has done both safety behaviours and avoidance, I can tell you neither work. So it's a conversation about that and exposure therapy, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you do want to get in touch with me, it's super simple. Send Osher email at gmail.com if you can't wait until Friday for the next podcast. Thursdays I'm here with James Matheson over on the other RSS feed. It's called Idle Australians. Me and Jimmy are doing a show together, and it's fabulous, and I'm very grateful to be making a show with James. All right. That's all the housekeeping? That's all the housekeeping. Great. Let me tell you about my guest today. Mr. Simon Taylor is a comedian. He's an author. He's a magician. And um, he is from Melbourne. (laughs) And he's on the show today at the age of 24. 24, he became a writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno in Los Angeles, which is kind of like, Oopsie daisy, I ended up in the 100 meters final at the Olympics. In bananas, all right? And he tells a whole story, and it's fucking cool, man. And I can't wait for you to hear it. It's so inspirational. It really is. He's written for Sean McAlef. He's uh, written this new book. It's called One Night Stand, which is based on a true story. And uh, it's a book that explores responsibility and empathy in a world, I guess, that values, I guess, ambition over those two things. He's an absolutely delightful man. I love him to pieces. I've managed to work with him on one or two things, which is just fantastic. And he's just fucking funny, man. He's really great. This is a really good show. I'm really grateful that we talked because I really love him. And the book's really great. He's really great. And the story of how he made his fucking dreams come true, you may not end up being a writer for Jay Leno. Probably not because Jay Leno doesn't have to show anymore, but you may not end up being a writer for Jay Leno, but the way he did it, the way he challenged himself, the way he challenged himself to improve a particular aspect of his skill set to the point where when he found himself in the room in the moment, he had the guts to back himself and go, no, actually I can do this. You, you'll hear him tell the story. That's freaking cool, man. And I'm grateful for it. His one-hour comedy special uh, was filmed at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. Uh, You can find it on Netflix. You can find his special Magic for Humans on Netflix, and he's currently touring around the country. The book is called One Night Stand. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find him on Twitter, the place that started it all, at Mr. Simon Taylor is where he is. He's a very funny man. I love him to pieces. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Simon Taylor. (laughs) It's great to see you, Simon. Where in the world are you today, right now? I'm in King's Cross at the moment. The um, beautiful King's Cross, which they've, I believe they've just repealed the lockout laws, so fucking pants-ahoy, go out and go drink it all four in the morning. That is, if you can find a yoga studio that's got a bar. I love this
3: suburb for that reason, though. It is genuinely eclectic. You've got multi-million dollar apartments and then the, the gay hub yoga studios and gyms and to, uh, VIP lounges. There's a lot of VIPs in Sydney. A lot of very important people. There's tobacconists. There's strip <laughs> club. It's just the oddest suburb to have everything in it. So I love
0: walking around it. Just it's pretty great. I'm pretty sure the P and VIP these days stands for pokies, right? <laughs> exactly yeah yeah very insipid pokies <laughs> yes exactly. we've got a very insipid pokey room in the back which you can smoke in and yeah. we, we'll turn a blind eye when you're pissing your change cup you'll be fine <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: ah that's the smell
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh
0: man. yeah God, I, man. I, I often tell g our eldest she's she's nearly 17 as of re- this recording and um there's somebody walk, working on their house about two or three doors down and one of the tradies smokes cigarettes. And right. so now and again we get a waft of like, it's not, you know, cherry blossom vape cloud. It's like proper Winnie Red just coming into the house. And she's like, ugh. And I was like, gee, you don't even understand. We used to go out and come home and you had to shower. Smelling like Otherwise that, Otherwise yeah. you would be doing your sheets laundry the next day because you right. stink of other people's lungs.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> it really... Um- like rocks that idea of nostalgia. Like I was reading a, a book about a guy who goes back in time into the late 50s and he's like, it smells terrible. <laughs> we, You watch Mad Men and you go, wow, it looks so cool. Don Draper is so cool. It smelled horrible. <laughs> it was a terrible... Terrible atmosphere.
0: People smoke it. Literally terrible atmosphere. People, You're getting you're getting cancer because, mm. you know, Sharon from accounts is puffing away at the holiday 50s all day. But she looks cool because she's got one of those long filters. It looks very cool. <laughs> See, this is what I mean. I know I live in Sydney now, but when I lived in America, which you did too, and we'll get to mm. that, I always enjoyed uh, scarf weather because someone who smokes cigarettes, they get to have a punctuation point on a social moment. You know right. well, then, I guess the meal's done. Where to yeah. now you know right. they get that that punctuation mark or like mm. the, it's the end of you know a deal or the end of sex or or, or whatever, yeah. yeah, it's a physical it's yeah. a physical moment, yeah, that clearly signals this is a piece of body language that signals, okay, this thing's done now we with a scarf, I've got to go, and um <laughs> in, if we were live closed captioning this, it would have square brackets and say dramatically flicks scarf over shoulder like Doctor Who and walks purposefully <laughs> towards door. Perfectly, well, then, yeah. fling, walk. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I mean, what are the other options? Long hair, maybe, just like a fl- or a cape. Wear a cape, man. <laughs> you just don't pull it around your body.
0: You can be the first. You can be yeah. the first to bring uh,
3: the cape. Back. Well, I am in mean, King's Cross, surely there's
0: someone with a cape walking <laughs> around yeah. here. I think, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's definitely a, a character like that around I here. I think when I was in the Castro in San Francisco, I think I saw someone wearing a cape. Nothing else but a cape. I'm pretty sure that was going on. There's a bit of sun protection. There's a whole show, uh, puppetry of the penis. That's their oh, whole brand. The capes, the <laughs> capes. How do I ever forget the capes? Amazing. That you see, this is the thing where we're going on puppetry of the penis, which I absolutely love. They just found the ability to franchise what they did. They just taught other blokes how to do it, and they just sent six people on three separate tours around the country. Just yeah.
3: Where are we going to find two other guys willing to show their dicks? To- thousands of people. Uh, Apparently,
0: Simon, everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere, everywhere,
3: (laughs) in every country, you're going to have a great business model.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Look, man, I'm I'm, I'm really grateful that we could talk today. You've just written a book. You've just written a Mm. novel, but that's not exactly how we first met. We first met on your, you're doing a show for uh, Channel 10, uh, which is yeah. in, in development. It was a, a variety show, a tonight show. Mm. And um, that's how we kind of first met. And I just adored the fact that I got a chance to work with someone who, you know, is actually a very good comedy writer and was able to help get the best out of me. We did a little skit. I don't know. if It, did, it was on pilot work. I don't know if people could find it on. I think the, yeah, I think the rule was we
3: weren't going to put it up until the show got up but. um, yeah, because I think it's because we said non airing pilot, we uh, decided just to wait
0: Okay. Or, or just also respect that we told everyone it was non airing Well, so. it was, look, I had a really great amount of fun doing it because the thing is, yeah. Simon, I was trying to tell Charlie Corson this the other day, I'm a terrible mm. actor. The only time I've ever done any good acting is when I've literally had a director say to me, okay, now look, the point you're going to look at is see that clamp over there? that's holding up a stand All right, I want you to look at that. I want to think about the first time you dropped the clutch on a car and did a burnout. Okay, great. We've got that reaction moving on, you know? <laughs> All right. No, you were great. I thought, I thought it was amazing. I was just so pleased you
3: were so game because I was thinking about this, like that was the first time we met in person, but I feel like we have been chatting on Twitter for yeah. a long time yes, we had. because we were both, you know, in and out of LA. And I think there's also, there's a kinship amongst Australians when you're over there trying to slay the dragon, you just kind of check in with all the other, Aussies, like, you doing all right? So I think we're, that that's kind of how we chatted, but I was kind of surprised you were willing to do the sketch. I'm like, I'll just try it. And you're like, yeah, I love it. And I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> you're like, no, it's funny. <laughs> it was really, yeah, I was really happy with, with that. With
0: that, you got right. me on a, as my hero, um, Tim Curry would have said, you've, you've found me on a rather special night, uh, in that if you would asked me that 10 years beforehand, when I was still drinking, I'll right. be like, no, fuck you. How come he gets his variety show pilot? Was my fucking variety show pilot? Uh, fuck right. you. Fuck, no fucking way. Fuck off. Right. You know, I would have been like so jealous that I would have said right. no. And then I would have cracked the shits that, you know, I didn't have one. The fact that I hadn't written one or pushed one or pitched one would not have mattered. No, you know? it's
3: not a fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have just
0: been so jealous. But, you know, yeah. I, was able, I was so grateful to be like, to be honest, it was like an opportunity to be like, this is an opportunity to behave in a 180-degree direction to how I used to live my life. And wow. just here's someone trying to get a mm. fucking thing up. The thing that I would mm. dearly love to do, they've written it, they've got it happening, and I was just so grateful. Mm. I was really grateful that you let me do that. I really, it's, so thank you.
3: Yeah. It's not a unique emotion to you. It's very like common one of like it's just this flood of, you know. I get that sort of spike of jealousy. It's a very visceral feeling, and then you your body does it before you have a chance to examine it most mm. of the time. You just go, oh, I can't. How, why did they get that? You know, and the best analogy I've had for I, I guess for entertainment is it's like surfing. You can't sit there yelling like angry at other people for being on a wave you're like well i've been i've been out in the surf for an hour why is he on a wave and i'm not on a wave it's like a lot of this a lot of showbiz a lot of entertainment is waiting for a wave to come it's luck a lot of the time even if you're skilled someone less skilled could be on a wave like a lot of it is just let the randomness happen. And if you can catch it, great. If you can't, wait right, for the next one. But I know the feeling you're talking
0: about, and I have to catch myself as well. I, I found it a good trick to get myself out of that. And I, honestly, so I did have to learn this in sobriety. I learned to put the word of course in front of anything. Right. And it happened when I lost my radio countdown job, which was the last job I had. It was when I, the final job, and then I was unemployed at the age of 40. Right. They hired someone younger and more relevant to the market for me. And my body went into that exactly the thing. I had that initial reaction. I went, wait, 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 wait. Mm. Of course they hired her to do the job. Mm. I'm Mm. like, well, hang on. I was 38. It's like I'm a 38-year-old sad divorced man talking to 13-year-old girls about Justin Bieber. I have no (laughs) business doing this job. She's in her mid-20s. Of course they hired her. And they let it go. Like, oh. (laughs) It allowed me to kind of see what it was. And I was grateful for it I couldn't believe that I got a chance to work with someone who had worked as far as I'm concerned you know on on one of the highest performing machines of show business that exists on the planet which is The Tonight Show with Jay Leno when it was The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and if as someone who's you know I just binged on Larry Sanders which is tough to watch these days post me Too movement uh, because I want to think that they were doing it as a joke I really hope they are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when right. they have those that weird Sharon Stone episodes. But you know, the, the machine of making a Tonight Show is, I don't think people quite conceive how much work goes into that first eight, 10 minutes of that TV show. But you yeah. ended up writing, being on the writing team for the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, mm. and you were quite young, you were 24. When, mm-hmm. that, when that happened which is bananas so it's insane <laughs> i still don't I'm guessing that you finished school somewhere around about 17 18 <laughs> yeah Can- and then went to uni and then started doing the stand up comedy thing okay all right so h- how yeah. does someone finish school at the age of 17. I'm guessing you were because you were a close up magician as well, which is I absolutely mm-hmm. adore close up magic. I, I wish I could do it. It's incredible. I'm guessing that started when you were pretty young. That cause that takes yonks. No? No. So essentially I was always like the
3: drama kid throughout school. And then when I went to uni, I was studying
0: psychology. And so- of course. Cause who, who wants a career in comedy? Me, what should we study? (laughs) Psychology. Well, I did. I didn't. I just thought I had to do a
3: sciencey thing, like because at least that's what drama was. Almost felt like an extracurricular thing, and then you know the main thing is like do a science, do a do a degree in something. But all throughout that, I was still wanting to perform. I was doing singing and songwriting, uh, spoken word poetry, magic, improv, and eventually comedy was where i really found my groove so i kind of just sampled all these different you know fields of entertainment but i did magic throughout uni and i think it's just because of youtube and the internet you can really learn fast like uh, i think back in the day you needed to know a magician (laughs) or maybe but you know find an old dusty book and learn from that but um yeah, I just, uh, the internet just helped me learn it really quickly. So, and then, yeah, and then I finished uni and I was working with kids with autism. I was doing uh, behavioral therapy called early intervention and helping kids with autism who are around two to five years old wow. get ready for school.
0: Oh my God. Tell me about that. Cause like Wolfie's 18 months. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the, the thing that most people get wrong? about kids who have been diagnosed with autism around the age of two or three, what's the most surprising thing you found about kids like that?
3: Well, I I think because the definition is now a spectrum,
0: Mm -hmm. you
3: know, ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, the difficulty is finding a commonality amongst all these kids. You really have to look at the individual symptoms that are unique to that particular case because it's not like you know, say something like epilepsy is usually around seizures. If you have seizures, it's called ep- epilepsy, that sort of diagnosis. But with autism, it's generally speaking, social impairment in their learning. And so that could that could manifest as a lack of eye contact but then the question is well how much lack of eye contact like how many seconds exactly no one will be able to say that but it's lack of eye contact coupled with language development problems coupled with extreme emotional reactions to social situations you know so it's always a cluster of behaviors mm. but what proportion those behaviors are and in what you know collection varies uh, significantly. So I would be with one case where a kid had zero language and we'd be teaching them PECs, which is a sort of a picture system where they point to what they want, etc. I'd have other kids who were incredibly good at speaking and picked up language fine, but they had hugely disproportionate emotional reactions to things. So if they were doing something like, like a common one was lining up toys in a row like lining up trains rather than playing with them appropriately they just create lines like if you walked out of the room and came back every object in that room is now in a line like lined up in a row and it's actually a bit scary coming back and seeing that and if you moved it they would have a tantrum and so that kind of behavior as well fell onto the spectrum of, of the disorder so i think the diversity of symptoms is the, is the number one thing to answer your question. That
0: would have been tough. You were quite young at the time. It would have mm. been really difficult speaking to parents who have probably only just got a diagnosis, who were only probably just starting to realise if it was their first kid or if it was they had two other kids that were neuronormal. I don't know what the word is—not neurodiverse. I don't know what the name is. What mm. is? You know, that would have been quite tough on you as a young right. person, young man, trying to have a <clears> conversation <throat> with parents who have got you know the thousand yards there.
3: Well, yeah. I th- the way that it was set up was that they would get the diagnosis and then go to these early intervention centers and they'd give, you know, they'd have a qualified psychologist. Someone had been doing, oh, doing it for, for multiple right, years right, right. who would then create the program, but to administer the program, you actually need a lot of hands on deck. So yeah. they would have three or four therapists, junior therapists, which I was usually psyched students typically, Sometimes teachers who would do three to four hours a day of their early intervention, and then it was important to have a different therapist on other days so that the child learned to generalize the skills. So if I was able to get a kid to say a particular word, you know, he was having lang- language problems, and I, you know, say, "Hey, say," you know, uh, "hungry," and the kid says it. And then the next day, a new therapist comes and says, "Say hungry," and the kid doesn't do it. Well, that's a problem because we're not getting them ready for school if they only, you know, do the correct behaviors with uh, one person. So it's a whole system mm. and plan. And I was essentially just administering the therapy, and part of it is essentially it's all based on positive reinforcement. So you're breaking the normal process of learning, and you'll see this with with you know, Wolfie in that, you know, he sees a stimulus, he reacts to the stimulus, there's a result. So, you know, if there's something hot, you know, he sees a stimulus, he touches it, it hurts. He doesn't do that again. I mean, that's a form of punishment. I get natural punishment, but the positive reinforcement, you know, like come here or, you know, have your food or, or drink this or eat this. Oh, it tastes good. I want more of that. So we would, essentially amplifying that whole natural learning process for the struggles each individual kid was having so if it was language we would break language down yeah. and reward them for each
0: letter or each syllable wow. until they could do the full thing did you end up walking around now, you know, once you start to see the code of the matrix did you're up walking around and meeting adults going, man, I could have, you know, six months of me, 10 years ago, your life <laughs> would have been kind of different. Did you start like seeing things in adults and and go, oh, you know, you could have had a bit going on? I certainly think that it, with mental health in general, I think
3: perhaps... Yours and my generation are like kind of the first to have this really open relationship with mental health care. Like it's like physical health. If you're unwell, go get it sorted. Where I think a generation above us, I do see that. I feel like it's the equivalent of someone breaking their leg when they're young and going, I'm not going to get this, you know, fixed. I'm just going to tough it out. You know, I'm just gonna get on with it. And then when they're older, they're like, why do why do I have a limp? <laughs> why does my leg hurt when I run? Is it because you never never addressed the issue when you were younger? And I think it's the same with mental health. I think when certainly my parents' generation had emotional trauma when they're younger, they never addressed it at the time. And so I, I certainly do recognize just in general, there is a generational difference between
0: the willingness to seek mental mental health help. What was the day that you went, I think I might be done here. What was the day that you started to go, you know what, there might be something bigger. I might uh, might buy a plane ticket. Like how did you get, like was, it, was there something? It wasn't that. I guess I was always doing performing.
3: Like that was my hobby. That was where I got a lot of joy out of, you know, the magic and, and improv comedy I really enjoyed and then started stand-up And then it was essentially when I got the job with Jay Leno that I thought, oh, I can't do both because if you're going to be a therapist for a kid with autism, you have to commit to at least a year. Yeah. So I had this job in my hands writing for the tonight show, like a dream job, as you mentioned, like, for me, it was so overwhelming. It's like this is the biggest late-night talk show in the history of television. Full stop. The Tonight Show. I have to just go where the energy is. You know, this has been presented to me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it with both hands. So then, the ethical thing to do was to stop taking cases because you know it, it's unfair to you know take on a case and then go. Oh, by the way, I'm away for a week. Cause I got to go to LA and all you know, that sort of thing. So it was really phased out, but I was quite engaged with it. It was tough. Something you mentioned before, how was it talking to parents? It was tough. I certainly noticed when they got an early diagnosis, a type of grief. And I think we generally associate grief with death, but there was a, a grief for what I now recognize as an imagined life. I imagined having a kid with these capabilities, them going to school, them graduating, going to uni, and now the doctor has just told me that life is is gone. So there's there was certainly a confronting element to this this idea of, of dealing with parents with that grief. So I I found the job quite challenging and engaging, and you know really really compelling. But it, it just so transpired that my
0: hobby had turned into something viable as a career. You're not sure a lot of people can relate to the, the, the grieving a future that never was. Mm. I was listening to Heggy and Cody today saying, every year in America, 800 kids have a limb amputated from a lawnmower accident. Wow. That's terrible. But, you know, you're also going to experience that grief. You know <laughs> the, the future yeah. that your kid won't yeah. have, but you have a different group yes, of exactly. kids diagnosed autistic. We were here to talk about a book. And we were going to talk about Jay Leno. And we we're talking. About
3: <laughs> no, this is more important. Let's be honest. Yeah. It is a it, it is an important factor, and it's been a big part of of my life the last few years. Anyway, and it is kind of related to the story of the book. Anyway, yeah. it is the imagined life is as vivid in your brain as, as anything else your brain is holding all these images of what you have to do the rest of today what you have to do the rest of the month and this is kind of what a lot of people have been experiencing with covid right the way that it transpired was at first our you know short term plans were lost and we're like ah oh, damn you know the comedy festivals canceled bugger that's annoying then our midterm plans were were lost. Like, oh, the restrictions means uh, we can't have a wedding or we can't have that 40th birthday party. So that was new to people. And then our long-term plans of like, I can't go back to see my family overseas for Christmas, that sort of... So, or I don't know when we're going to get married. I don't know when we're going to have a kid. So it is a very relevant experience because we can handle a short-term loss. We begrudgingly can handle
0: a midterm loss, but long-term loss is, you know, it's big. It's a big thing. The grieving of that as well is, it's something I think it would do as well to give time to, you know. I was speaking to someone on a live stream the other day and they, you know, we've all done it. They said goodbye to a Labrador they had for 13 years, you know. Mm. Give it time. Allow that grief to happen. Uh, We, I think we run into a lot of trouble when we, you know, it's like, I don't know. Leaving a bottle of kombucha out in the sun, it's going to explode. You know, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> give it time. I just got a real clear indication of your demographic with the reference you just used. Oh, it's also because <laughs> they don't drink alcohol, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm the, I'm the same, but, mate. We're a, we're a beach house oh, as well. Oh, I love a bit of beach. I love it when Audrey comes home with a bit love of beach. beach. It's pretty good. Mm. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's you good did, I think we should actually get to that part though because it is pretty fucking amazing because I do I do love hearing a showbiz fairy story. How do you, and, and it's fine to talk about it because the Tonight Show with Jay Leno doesn't exist anymore and the Tonight Show has moved back to New mm. York and so it's a completely different team and different setup, It's all completely different. So no one's about to follow in your footsteps and God damn it, if they do, good luck to them. How on earth does a kid who's good with close-up magic and uh, works with autistic kids helping them to say the word hungry get a shot Mm. at that title
3: that's the prerequisite
0: apparently (laughs) Um,
3: (laughs) that's what they had on the the job application no i was always enamored by tv and, and radio and so i was writing maybe we would have come across each other on twitter around that time as well from about 21 or 22 i was writing monologue jokes on twitter so i was practicing writing and as i said i had always been that you know singer songwriter the spoken word poetry improv like i'd always been building that muscle so when i went to la i was there because a friend of mine wanted me to write on his a musical he was writing so he said hey i have got a place in la come hang out very common amongst Australians to find a couch in L.A. and go, great, that's, it, that's all I need. And so I flew over just for two weeks. And I said, if you can find a gig for me, I'd love to do some stand-up while I'm there. And I got a gig at,
0: you remember Meltdown Comics? Nerdist yeah, Meltdown. that was great on um, Ho- Hollywood. San, I think it was... San Vicente, one of those. It was up further north. All I remember about Meltdown Comics is I remember walking past her in mm. 2012, early 2012, and it said, yeah. I'm now accepting Bitcoin. And I'm thinking, someone somewhere has spent $470,000 on whatever that week's Wolverine comic was. <laughs> like they're sitting that's there amazing. holding this Wolverine comic in their hands today, going, fucking, that's really fucking <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, I was on Sunset, oh, Sunset Boulevard, Boulevard. I remember Crackpot Boulevard getting there is only the beginning. Sorry, yes, yes, that's <laughs> that's right. I just I just quite some Broadway at you, I just do. and I yeah, got a gig there
3: on the first night. I got off the plane, pretty much went to the gig, yeah. and a producer from The Tonight Show was at that gig. Fuck You, <laughs> <And> just, <laughs> isn't it crazy? And I only worked this out after like years of going to LA, how fucking surreal and insane and rare that is like imagine if a producer a hot shot producer was in the crowd it actually doesn't happen it never happens and yet it happened on my first night in LA and ever since going to LA seeing how absurd that is to happen is on reflection what did really- this
0: person say to you after the set
3: uh you were really funny would you like to come and see the tonight show essentially and so i'm like yeah great free tickets not knowing that they're all free usher and thinking like great it doesn't get better than this and i went and saw the tonight show and like amazing loved it loved every detail loved all the little behind the scene things
0: let's just talk about that because i remember the first time i saw american idol When you sit in the room, if you've worked in the industry, when you sit in the room, it's like, I don't know, if you're into racing cars, if you're into go-karts, they say, do you want to come and sit in the pits for the Formula 1 for the whole race? You're like, are you fucking serious? I don't care about the car racing. I don't care about the person behind the wheel. I want to see how the team works. Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll never fucking forget that day. It must have been incredible for you to see.
3: Well, you would have picked up details that the audience around you is oblivious to. Right. Something that I picked up on was, I don't know if it's just tradition, but they would have the cue cards rather than the auto cue, and so literally a guy holding a stack of big, you know, A3 cards with the jokes on it. And at one point he he fumbles the card, and what Jay does, Jay has read the setup. Oh. Kim Kardashian went to Norway this week, all right? The guy fumbles the card, and so what Jay does is he turns to the band and says, did you know this, that Kim Kardashian went? They go, no, we didn't know. And all that was was it giving the cue card guy enough time to fix the fumble. And that, to me, was the most enjoyable thing, just to see how they deal with mistakes. Like they are such a slick operation that they're so finely tuned. So that was the hot... I know that's odd, but that was the highlight. Not Santana, who was on, not Jay's moralogue, just the technical aspect of it. And, and then after the show, I was leaving and the producer came, found me, and he said, no, 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 come meet Jay backstage. And there's about, you know, five people who get to meet Jay after each show, usually friends of the whoever's on, like the guests or staff or something like that or vips of the network that sort of thing and when i i met jay i just noticed everyone was having a very similar interaction with him he was saying oh where are you from?" from they go oh, we're from milwaukee he's like oh i've played the milwaukee comedy club all right see a photo bye." and i just wanted to you know be a bit of a smart ass and a larrikin and when i met him i said hey jay i'm gonna write for you one day ha 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 and he's like oh okay yeah well the producer says you're funny we'll come upstairs and come see the office so i went to the office and i'm looking at the producer like did you hear what he said he said "I can." and they were taking me through the writer's room and how it worked and people just send jokes pretty much directly to jay and he reads them and if he likes them he you know keeps them and and workshops them and before i left Jay said send some jokes in we'll get an Australian perspective. And I went home, I was shaking. I wrote two pages of jokes and I sent them off and the next day they sent me a contract.
0: I am just full of, my body is full of tingles listening to you say that because there's so much about that story that I absolutely love. I know I said fuck you, but what I I just, the (laughs) fuck you wasn't a jealous fuck you. It wasn't like I was talking about at the start of that conversation. The fuck you was a... I always think of that opening scene of Trinity in the Matrix, the opening scene of the Matrix where Trinity jumps off the building and then pirouettes mid-air and dives through the stairwell right. window. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. couldn't have done that had she not done years and years and, years and 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 years of practice. Like you just you just had to have everything ready at yes. that moment. At The moment exactly. that the window opened, you were like, Yep, I have exactly what you need, in fact. And they went, great. They couldn't be fucking bothered to go casting or looking for someone. They don't care. They want people to show up. They don't care. And that that you were there. And what I also love, because I'm a bit of a – people can say what they like about Jane Leno. I am – he's one of these people that I really look up to for – He follows a method that has worked for me all the other time. It's like, you don't have to be better than everyone. You just have to out fucking work everybody. You just have to be the one that stays in line. Mm. Everyone else will get out of the line before you. You just have to be the one that stays. It's like endurance races. The person who wins a hundred mile running race isn't the fastest. It's the person who slows down the least. That's how you win a hundred mile race. And Jay is like absolutely that guy. So he would have seen that in you. He would have gone, oh, yeah. Because game recognizes game. He wouldn't have offered you right. that had he not seen it in your eyes. But every single thing you'd done to that point, to that that magical, like you think of it, it was a three-minute conversation at the back and noticed. It was a, a one line that you gave him in the green room. <laughs> just
3: being a smart ass as well. Like I didn't believe it. Like I I was just trying to be an idiot, really. And I think it is right that in like I before that would stay in bed and go, I'm not getting up until I've written one solid joke on Twitter. Like it needs to be good. And I would set myself little goals. Like I need 10 retweets today, whatever the, it is. If it takes 10 jokes, then it's 10. Jo- if it takes two jokes, great. But I would train myself because Twitter back then was just the text. So people actually read it. It wasn't gifs, It wasn't links. It wasn't anything. So you could get direct feedback. And you were quite restricted, 140 characters. This is pre-Trump. You had to be good. It had to be. Yeah, exactly. Learning to write a joke without any of the fat. Like, what are the minimum amount of words to make someone laugh? That was a really important skill. So when he said send jokes in, I could write two pages of topical jokes because I'd been doing it pretty solidly for two years on Twitter and longer before that in other forms. So it really was... I, I was ready
0: for it in that moment. So I guess it just all lined up. Give us an idea of the kind of workload of something like that. What's your day look like when you write on a show like that? Because if, and we, we see it with like, you'd see it with Jimmy Fallon or obviously pre-COVID, these, these shows are all very different now in the current format. What's the volume of material that is produced to get those, say, five minutes of monologue? So I heard Jay
3: would go through about a thousand jokes a day Oh, God. To cut it down to 10. His, his monologues were longer. His monologues were 10 minutes because he only really cared about the monologue, really. like where, He wanted that first 10 minutes to be killer. I don't think Letterman at the time was doing more than a few minutes and it was mainly sort of in-jokey and crowd work and who's from out of town type stuff. And so each host has their own style and their like, for example, Jimmy, I think, does three or four minutes of a monologue, and most of it is setups for an impression. So a lot of the punchlines are, or as Obama would say, then he'd do Obama impression, or as Trump would say, Trump impression. So if you watch him do his monologue, he's just trying to find ways to get a bo- funny voice in. Where Jay was just a joke teller, he could, he, he's happy to tell jokes for ten minutes. And the rest is produced by other segment producers. So I would send in about 50 jokes a day. I'd just read the news all day, read everything, every single thing, go through all the political stuff, go through all the world news, go through all the odd news. I really enjoyed the odd news because I think you you had a better chance at, at getting a gag up if no one else had tackled that subject. Because when something like, you know, some big news happened, like the election or something. You knew there's hundreds of jokes the other writers had written about, you know, something very common everyone was talking about. It might've been like Tom Cruise got divorced or something like that. Well, this, oh my God, he's going to read 300 Tom Cruise divorce jokes today. So I'd throw one or two in the mix, but then I'd look at other news. So mainly just reading everything, reading everything, looking at all the news. I'd write about 50 jokes, send them in and I'd get paid per joke he used. So I would set myself little goals. Like, you know, I started with getting, you know, one gag up a fortnight, then one a week. Then I wanted one every day. Then I wanted two in one monologue. And then I wanted the first joke and I wanted the last joke and I wanted the music to play after the joke, you know? So that became my sort of goals and and work focus. Did you get all them? I did. I ticked all the boxes uh, in two years. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The best one is the music. When they do a joke and the band go, does the sting, that's just, oh, that felt so
0: good, so surreal when, the, yeah, yeah the band plays after your gag. When you're writing for someone like Jay, obviously they've got their appetite and they'll then make it their own in, in a way, you know, obviously either with words or the way they deliver it. When you're writing with someone like Sean McAuliffe, you worked on Mad as Hell for a couple of years. Mm. I get the impression that McAuliffe, might have had a bit of a, a hard time collaborating earlier because he is just so when he gets in that thing he is this is it and then well I've I've read anyway that he he had a, a difficult time collaborating when he was younger is it, is it like a dinner party where you're trying to serve up things that the particular people you know will like
3: yeah there's definitely writing to people's voice so just to take the late night landscape in general Jay has no problem saying Americans are dumb or stupid or something like that. So, for example, uh, in the first couple of months, I wrote a joke that was like, a new study says the rate of teenage pregnancy is at an all-time low. That was the headline. And then I did some more research and I followed up with. However, the rate of teenagers failing school has increased. So it's not that they don't want to have sex. It's just that they're not smart enough to work out how. So that was the joke that I sent. But the way he said it was, it's like, it's not that they don't want to have sex, just that they're too stupid to work out how. And that clicked in something for me. It's like, oh, he doesn't mind calling people stupid, fat, lazy. Uh, like he can get away with certain things like that because he's built up that likability and, and persona. And then someone like Conan can be a acerbic, but I think he's a little more whimsical. So if you're writing for Conan, you could have the same topic, but he would be a bit more sort of bizarre. If you're doing Jimmy, as I said, try to find a way to put a funny voice. He'd probably impersonate one of the teenagers like you do the teenagers doing a voice. So with McAuliffe, he was most interested in fleshing out a, a concept and creating a character for that concept to go a bit deeper because I was coming from monologue writing jokes. He had to say, well, what else? You know, I want, an actual concept, explore it, give me details, that sort of thing. So what he would do is he'd have his writer's room and we wouldn't really talk to each other. we are just sort of, you know, do you want a cup of tea? That was really the only thing we'd say to each other. But we'd we'd write a script and we'd send him the script and he would create a Frankenstein of those scripts. He goes, well, I like this concept, but I like this joke on the topic and he would put it together based on that. So Sean really preferred us to go into a lot more depth than i was used to so it was really nice to learn that format as well did it change the way that you wrote your own stand-up doing these jobs mm, I, I don't know no i don't think so because stand i'd always write on stage i'd never write it out long longhand before a gig i Do what a lot of comics, I guess, do is you write a sort of a dot point of topics and you kind of, you have an idea of where you want to go. You might have a sort of punchline in mind, You might have told a mate the punchline you're thinking of. And if the audience doesn't laugh, then it's gone forever. You don't do it. And if they do laugh, you keep it. So in many ways, stand up is the audience writing the material. They're telling you what you can get away with. Yes, I like it when you're self-deprecating. No, I don't like it when you're so arrogant. Yeah, I like it when you make fun of these people, but not those people. You can't do that, you know. So really an audience will kind of steer your stand-up. But writing for TV, I am catering to a specific voice.
0: Right. The book, One Night Stand, gloriously titled, the book started as a stand-up riff, didn't it? Yeah, it it was
3: a show that kind of, developed out of me going through a situation that I just was so consumed with. I couldn't talk about anything else on stage because each year I'll write a new show. I do the festival circuit. So comedy festival every year, this will be, well, it's meant to be my 11th year, but it'll be the 10th year because it was, it was canceled last year. But you know, you write a show, you tour it and then you start writing again. And so as I was doing gigs, I just couldn't talk about anything other than this pregnancy situation I was in and it became a one-hour show and then a publisher saw the show and said, well, this should be a book. So it it came from that.
0: When you're on stage, it's a very different form to the written word. Mm. How did you find you had to adjust things when you were were writing? The main one in a novel
3: is character development because in stand-up, really there's only one character you're only really talking about yourself unless you're doing even if you're doing impressions or you're talking about oh I saw my mate the other day and he said this and I said that really that's kind of a prop to bounce off or to get a punchline out but when you're writing a novel the the main feedback I got from the first draft was your characters feel like props to set up a joke or to set up the main character. And so that transition was hard, learning to write other characters. That was tricky.
0: And and since then, the novel, has that then changed the way <laughs> you now... Uh, you know, because I mean, you look at yes. you look at stand-up specials from ten years ago of of, of Chappelle, and you look at him now. You are like, fuck, wow, he has also changed. There are some comedians that do the same thing and have done the same thing for twenty something years. Don't know if you can get yes. away with that. That's much anymore. Yeah. But you are saying, like, having written the novel and having you know thought about character development and, and drawing a, a, a richer picture in people's minds, that's changed a little bit what you do on stage now. Yeah, I, I think that consciousness of
3: the light and shade I think in a stand-up show when I did the stand-up show the most important thing was to end on a laugh and in the novel I did originally and then the feedback was this feels cheap and so now I think I'm willing to not end on a laugh in a in a show if it is the best ending not for the sake of it not to be edgy But if it is the best way to tell the story, do what is the best way to tell the story. And that's a scary thing for a comic because saying something and then not hearing the wave of laughter back is terrifying. You're like, oh, not doing it wrong because we train our brains to do that. We train our brains to go, keep talking until you get that laugh, build up the tension, release the tension, build up the tension, release the tension. And I think that's why Hannah Gatsby's Uh, Nanette was so incredible because she built up the tension and she's like, now deal with it. And people went, what? No, we weren't expecting that. That's not the formula. So I've certainly felt I I could be a bit braver on stage after writing the, the novel.
0: It's quite the dance, style. I've never had the guts to do it. Of course, my ego told me I could. A bunch of times, but I've never had the. I'll tell
3: you, you can. You can do it if you want to do it. <laughs> not well. <laughs> um, you could do it. No, you could do it. You could do it quite well oh, if you no. dedicated yourself. I, I'm not sure you want that lifestyle, though. It's just a lifestyle
0: choice, really. Close mates of mine do it. And um, while I envy the fact that they will always at least have some control over how much they work, like they can always go and do a gig. Like even if they don't get paid, they can go out and do a thing that right. night to keep the blade sharp. All right, because yes. that's a lot of it. Is keeping the blade sharp, mm-hmm. keeping match fit. I can't go and say, "Excuse me, um, Sandra Sally, can you step to one side?" I just have to stand in front of a camera for a while. Uh, <laughs> I can't do that, you know. No, Although no. With Twitch and stuff like that, it's very different. Yeah, but it's not now.
3: the same in no. in terms of you know what you're no. dealing like, with production wise. I, I for love sure. the way
0: that they, I love do. I love the way that they do it. And you're right. I've I've grew up with um, Luke Heggie, and I've so I've watched mm. him over the years just kind of develop more and more and more and you're right the balls that it takes to go from getting a giggle every eight to ten and then a big house laugh about every 30 seconds like where Mm. the whole room goes to space those out Mm. it takes fucking cajones, man that takes balls but you've also got to get the audience to a point where they're willing to be with that that they're they're like i've paid my 40 bucks how come i'm not spending the whole time laughing.
3: Yeah, I th- I think certainly with a f- like a festival show, when people have come to see you specifically, they're willing to listen. If they're going to a comedy club to see comedy on a Friday night for a hands party or whatever, it's like just do the jokes. And the clubs want you to just laugh per minute or yeah. TV appearance laughs per minute. Uh, but if, if someone's opted in to see Osher Ginsberg, it's like, well, I want to see you. You know, don't just do the... The tricks, don't just do the every eight seconds, 10 seconds. However, you need to deliver it, just give me a genuine version of you. And so I certainly saw that. I you, you spoke to Nick Cody a while ago. He was probably the first person I saw take a bit more time with his setup because he had that confidence. I think he was talking about that is, you know, from however young he was with this confidence from, I think it's because he was in sport. He's like, I could crush everyone here. And
0: he's just <laughs> those sport guys who, who come into my lane. Yeah, yeah
3: exactly. <laughs> but he, he had the confidence to go yeah. a minute, two minutes without a laugh yeah. because he knew that he, he was about to deliver something even better. Yeah. Trust me. If I build up the tension just a bit longer, you're going to love it. And once that trust was established, yeah.
0: yeah after the race that's so uh, yeah just interrupting the show for just a second here I might need to play an ad in a second but firstly let me let you know about another podcast episode 182 with Dan illick the host of the fantastic podcast a rational fear you know uh, you know Dan he's done things everywhere he was also in the Carlton Draft ad where the schooner comes out of the sky and crushes a house or a car or both yeah he's amazing episode 182 with dan ellick is all the way back in may 2017 he's fantastic have a little peekaboo nothing's black and white and i think it's important to paint that rainbow of where different media outlets sit on the different points of view they have let me have a look at your iphone what media are you consuming let me look at your snapchat discovery which one of these do you follow where do you get your information from plot out where they might stand politically or their point of view on a spectrum from left to right from credible to not credible fill that matrix out and plot them where they might be there's a great difference between information and understanding give people the tools to be able to decide for themselves what message they are being fed and how it fits into the scheme of things giving people the ability to put the messages into context that is dan illick you can listen to his podcast it's called a rational fear or that episode with dan is 182 in the podcast feed just scroll on back and you can find it there now you may hear an ad here you also may not hear an ad here let's roll the dice
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss.
0: There was the ad. Now we're getting back to the show. Just to just to go back to the the, the book for a second, it's a thing that how do I put this delicately? Uh, the book is called <laughs> One Night Stand the risk of this could be life-changing? Is that part of why One Night Stands are so exciting, Simon?
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question, man. uh, Maybe. I mean, I I think there's a complacency more so than the risk. Like, I I think there's an assumption of like, eh, nothing's going to happen. I think that is prevailing as opposed to,
0: woo, let's roll the dice, baby. I I think a lot less people, uh, a lot more people are risk-averse. You mentioned before about uh, how do I put this, the fluency that, that people of my generation and, you know, and your generation, I think I might be a, a bit too old, but the fluency of that to have more literacy around discussing mental health as it, right. it's just health. You know? I think similarly, that fluency exists far more in the one-night-stand world, the, the world of of, of sexual mm. intimacy, the world of, you know, this is great, this isn't great, I'd like this, I don't want that. You know, like that sort of mm. communication I, from younger people that I know that are sexually active, that sort of the things that get talked about before anything even happens. It's like, my God, I'd never had that conversation, you know? Right. Because it gets all lined up, I guess. It gets all lined up in the DMs. They're already, yeah, yeah, I know what someone's going to bring to me. Great. Mm. <laughs>
3: It's true, but it's still, as this experience transpired for me, there was still way too much I didn't know and way too much that is not in the zeitgeist uh, in terms of contraception, in terms of responsibility and things like that, that really woke me up. And from doing the stand-up, people would come up, up to me afterwards and go, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know that. And, and I'm like, yeah, well, I did I was in my late 20s when my real experience, because the novel's based on something that really happened to me, was a bit different. I was seeing someone for a while and um, I assumed things, I assumed that because we were seeing each other, that after a while, you know, we, if, you know, she said she's on the pills so I don't need a condom anymore because we're established and we trust each other and I've had a test and she's, had, you know, that sort of thing, there is still enough lacking in our sexual education to need to put some work in. So you may be right, it may be lots better, but it was a rude awakening for me of how much better it still needs to be. <laughs>
0: I don't want to spoil the ending but I, I would thoroughly encourage people to go on and, and dive in because I it's, a, it's a it's a beautiful story and told with compassion and it is funny but you you didn't make it it's it's, it's not like I'm reading a, a transcript of a stand-up show right I'm not seeing the gags all the time it's in there to some
3: degree but yeah I just had to be honest I mean that they were peeled back my first instinct was to write it all with mm. punchline at the end, but then it just became the truth of the story had to come out, as in the, the emotional truth, the experience that I went through and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I really felt that I had to just tell people what I'd learned. That was really it. And all these things about whether it's sex ed, where it comes down to like literally condoms aren't 100%. You need to know that. And people go, oh, well, they're pretty good. Well, they're pretty good if you use them correctly. You know, I think it's 2% failure rate if you use them correctly, but 16% failure rate if it's too big or it's too small or you leave it in your wallet or you open the packet with your teeth and puncture it. You know, you need to wear it. You can't just have it. Like all this sort of just getting it right. So there's little things like practical stuff. But then there, there becomes the emotional side of things where there's this assumption when... I don't know if it's from Hollywood or movies that a woman is a mother when she finds out she's pregnant and a dad becomes a father when he holds a baby. I don't know about you, and I'd love to hear how you felt, but for me, when I was told I slept with this woman and then four weeks later she said she was pregnant, I already felt this wave of elation and joy and excitement of like, oh, my God, I'm going to be a dad. I felt like I was already experiencing fatherhood. At least beginning the journey, so that little things like that in our education about the emotional experience of sex, the repercussions of sex uh, it still has a way to go but did you w- when did you feel like a dad
0: um well I, I kind of had a, a different start in that I felt like a dad before even conception because right. Georgia was ten when I met Audrey, right my stepdaughter and there was this moment, and it happened. It, it wasn't uh, it, in reaction to news. It wasn't to reaction to you know I'm I'm pregnant. I just the same morning I woke up realizing that, or the same moment that I realized I'm in love with Audrey was the same moment that I realized if a bus was out of control and running down the street and you were in front of it, I would push you out of the way and die hmm. for you. And I've known you for not very long at all. We we had delayed me meeting her because Audrey's yeah. you know very clever in the way it happened. So it was that moment. It was the moment of realising that, oh, I'm no longer number one. So yes. I had a different attention uh, to it.
3: But it's the same thing in that it's not a physical moment. Mm. It's not a here's the baby, you're holding a baby, now you're no, a dad. That's bullshit. It is, that's it exa- exactly. Total bullshit. Exactly bullshit. That's total and, bullshit. Yeah, totally. And And I feel like that is quite a common perception of if a guy hears about a surprise pregnancy, well, why would he care unless the baby's born, unless there's my, there's enough of these poor, you know, preconceptions going around that when I tell this story and uh, on stage and in the book, the reaction is like, Oh wow. I never thought of th- that experience or I did. God, I didn't know you could be so attached to the idea of being a father and I'm glad to hear you say that you, you had a moment where you
0: realized, oh, I'm not number one anymore. That is, yeah, it's really powerful. I think that's it though. For, for me, that's what it is. And mm. I say that because I know the opposite to also be true. I know right. men who are close to me that I have known in my life that have more than one child and it is still all the, you know, they, okay, I'm off to golf, bye. Right, and right. And just gone. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for some guys, it doesn't happen. Right. And for some guys, it doesn't happen, like, entirely. And, you know, I'm sure there's days when I'm still, like, quite self-centered and not, but I want to do these things. I'm a giant teenage boy. You know, I'm sure these things still happen. But Mm -hmm. it's this switch that flicks at the bottom of you. It's, you know, when you don't want to be... In your mid forties and still starting fights at the pub when you've got kids at home, you're like, "Fucking, yeah. what are you doing, mate? <laughs> like, it's not about you. Go home, yeah. look after these children, because you know they are going to be so fucked up from you not being in the house. Yeah, like, in of course, so many, like you're just amplifying whatever's already not going great in your life by not yes. being there for them, man. I'm I'm so grateful that I got a chance to chat with you, and I'm so grateful. I'm, you know what? I'm grateful that we had COVID-19, which created a pandemic, which took away all of your work, so all you had to do was write a novel, <laughs> <Yes>. and then <laughs> you had nothing to do but write a novel. Now the novel's published, so we could converse and have this chat today. So there you go.
3: There you go. It all worked <laughs> out. Also, can I, I, I want to play something up. I sent you a text a, a, a while ago saying that um, uh, my partner and I met on Bumble, And one of my Bumble photos was a photo of you and me with a rose. Amazing. And and so we matched. It wasn't the first photo, by the way. Oh, good. Uh, It was like down the line. After you holding a fish and squatting next to a tiger? Yes, exactly. That was the one. And, (laughs) yeah, we matched. And then her first line was a joke about The Bachelor and she said, oh, it was great that you had that photo with Osha because it gave me an easy, like, opening line. Because on Bumble, the girls have to start. And we've been together two years. So right. thank you for the, the easy
0: opener, I guess. Thank but, um, no, 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 no. You are the one that wrote the sketch that had me holding a rose. So, okay. again. All right. Well, that's very generous it, of you. <laughs> I believe it was Jay Leno who said you make your own luck. Well, there you go. In the the words of the great Jay Leno, the serendipity, you've created all the raw material that you've thrown into the serendipity machine, and the serendipity machine has thrown back a great relationship and things to you. Well, I just, yeah. Uh, You still helped set us up in a way, in an odd way, Um, so I appreciate it. I am (laughs) at your service. You're the best. Uh, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful people could hear us have this conversation because I think we covered enough showbiz stuff to make people go, oh, yeah, interesting showbiz stories, but then that you were so generous to speak about the stuff that you work with with the children. I think a lot of people may have never really kind of, unless you're in that, unless you know someone who's got a kid that's affected by that, they may never realise that that's the situation that people are living with. So, and I, I, like, I'm particularly grateful for you to be sharing about that kind of thing because I think that's really, that would have helped a lot of people kind of understand a bit more about the community that they live in. Um, yeah, so, I, I think so. That, There's always a lot to
3: learn. There's always a lot of details that we never bother looking up until it affects us,
0: and I think we can do a little bit better there sometimes. You're the best. And that was Simon Taylor, ladies and gentlemen. He's fantastic. He's just great story, isn't it? Freaking great story. At Mr. Simon Taylor on Twitter is where you can find him. He's super cool. Uh, the book is called One Night Stand and you can find his special magic for humans on Netflix and just support him because he's great. Go and find him. Go watch his bits on YouTube. Go and check it out. And if he's touring a year, go buy a ticket because he's freaking good at what he does. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thank you to Andy Ma my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, general manager, and um, Kat Herder. Thank you to Haley for the socials. Thanks to Bree Steele for the research. And thanks to you for listening. If you need me, I'll be back here on Friday, if you can't wait till then, Thursday, with James Math- James, James? James Matheson on Idle Australians, which is uh, the podcast to do with James, which is really fun. Until we speak next time...